Welcome to the Empower to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, we've got Dr. Casey Call from TCU. Uh, Dr. Call works with uh, the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development, and she's got a really, really interesting story, um, starting off uh, working as a school counselor and working in schools, and now transitioning into... uh, studying attachment, working at the KPICD full-time, um, and uh, she's got a ton to say, and we're just really grateful to her. She was an, a really, really fun interview, great interview, um, and so I think you're going to love it. Just note, this episode is split into two, our interview with Dr. Call is split into two different episodes, uh, and that's mainly because our content sort of separated out that way. And so uh, you'll notice today we're going to talk about um, attachment theory, kind of what it is, how to wrap your brain around um, what attachment is and how it happens. And then in part two, it gets a little bit more specific, we're going to talk about um, attachment cycles. Um, we're going to talk about attachment styles, and we're also going to talk about um, what they mean and how we can uh, kind of take next steps in um, in our attachment with uh, those we care for and ourselves. And so. Uh, Really think you're going to love it today. Uh, One note for you as you go into this episode is that you're going to notice a new look at ETC. Uh, We have rebranded, and our um, friend and graphic designer, Lachelle Robotham, has killed it. She's done an incredible job, um, and we love what she's come up with. We're really proud of it. Um, At some point, there might be a whole episode where we choose to talk with her and talk about kind of the symbolism behind the new logos and colors and all that. But for now, we'll just say uh, we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Uh, you'll also notice that our YouTube page has been totally revamped. So if you log on to YouTube this morning and search Empowered to Connect, um, you will find not only um, a just a ton of content from Dr. Purvis, from Michael and Amy Monroe, from uh, ETC from years past. You're also going to notice every episode of the podcast is hosted um, on YouTube as well. So if you are, are somebody that gets to the gets to the office and uh, starts something on YouTube, just to have it playing in the background during the day, uh, man, let, let it run with the ETC podcast and catch up on episodes you might have missed. We're also going to be uh, periodically adding some new content here uh, each week. And so uh, we're really excited about what we've got uh, coming for you in 2021. And uh, lastly, just a note, as always, we would love your feedback. Um, in 2020, we were uh, pretty overwhelmed with the response uh, from you guys. You know, We did not do um, a lot of work uh, marketing and promoting the show, uh, mainly because we wanted to, to see uh, who the show was going to be serving. Um, we, we didn't want to artificially inflate numbers. Um, we wanted to really see um, what episodes are uh, really making an impact, what are we getting the most feedback on, and and uh, we, we were really stunned. Um, we have listeners this past year from 41 different countries. Um, you know, we're approaching 50,000 downloads on the, uh, on the show so far. And that's just, uh, that's just incredible to us. And it's really humbling. So thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing it with friends. Uh, and uh, as always, if you've got feedback for us, uh, you want to let us know what you've really enjoyed, um, some things that you would love to see on the show going forward. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Genuinely, we really would love to hear from you. So uh, you can give feedback through uh, our 
Apple Podcast uh, ratings and reviews. Um, you can send them through our website, um, DM us on Instagram, shoot us a message on Facebook, um, or now on YouTube. Throw something in the comments on YouTube. But we would love to hear from you one way or another. Uh, thank you for supporting us so far. We are so excited about the year to come. Um, and we've got uh, an, an incredible, incredible lineup uh, for this spring for you guys. We're really excited. We really feel like the best is yet to come. So uh, without any further ado, thanks for being here. Now, please enjoy our interview with uh, Dr. Casey Call. Well, today we got a very special guest. It is Dr. Casey Call uh, from TCU, and she is the Associate Director of Education there at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. And so Dr. Call is going to come with us today uh, on a journey just talking all about attachment. Um, but before we jump into that, why don't we just give you a chance, Dr. Call, uh, to just share more about uh, who you are and, and kind of your role at TCU, if you don't mind. Sure. I'm excited to be here today. Thank you for asking me. And um, I guess I got into attachment work in 2007 and learning about attachment. Um, Prior to that, I was a elementary school teacher. And then I went back to school and got a a master's in counseling. And then I was a middle school and high school counselor. Um, And then I was, I wanted to get a PhD. I've known that pretty much my whole life, but I didn't know what in. And so I started looking at programs and I really wanted to go back to TCU because I just loved it there. Um, and I found, I, I didn't find a program that was a good fit for me because their counseling area didn't have a PhD yet. And, um, and so I ended up applying and getting accepted into a school psychology program. Um, and I was set to go to that. And then I got a TCU magazine in the mail for alumni over the summer. And there was a story about Dr. Purvis and Dr. Cross and about the Hope Connection Camp that they were um, hosting for children who had been adopted. And I immediately, I mean, I can feel like my body, like getting off, like <laughs> all wrinkly because it just, that's, I, that's how I felt when I read that article. I was like, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. And that's so... Awesome. I called Dr. Cross and I said, um, are you accepting any, you know, students into your program? And he said, well, come and meet me. And um, this is just like Dr. Cross to just (laughs) throw all the rules out the window, which I'm so thankful for in this case. Um, But I went and met him. They were actually in the middle of a Hope Connection camp. So I got to go back and observe Uh I I died. When I was sitting there watching Dr. Purvis work with the kids, I just had tears coming down my face because I thought this makes sense to me. I didn't know why. And I didn't know, like, I didn't know any of the science behind it, but I knew that the way that she was working with children was the way that, that came naturally to me and the way that I wanted to do it, you know, like I wanted to learn more from her. I could have watched her all the time. And so I started the doctoral program that like a month later at TCU Mm -hmm. and uh, finished my program in 2012. Um, Throughout that time, I got to host many Hope Connection camps with Dr. Purvis and learn from her. Um, I accompanied her on several home programs that we did. Um, I got to um, just help her and Dr. Cross while, you know, sit in on conversations that they were have when they were trying to figure out, you know, why did this camp work so well? Why did we, why are we seeing the results that we're seeing? Um, and kind of why they were fleshing out the, I guess, the principles and the strategies of TBRI. 
which is trust-based relational intervention. And so it just, it felt like such an honor to be there. Um, and I felt like I was in the right place at the right time. That is awesome. I, I didn't know that you started off in schools, that you were working in that setting. So has that, before we jump into attachment stuff, did that, any of that inform kind of your desire to go into attachment work? Like was, was seeing what you had seen through being a school counselor, was that part of your desire to, to look into attachment more? I think so. I've always, I started out as a nursing major, so I've always wanted to help kids. I've always, I mean, that's always been my passion. Um, and when I was an elementary teacher teaching third grade, I mean, we had, it was a small school and we had um, three third grade teachers. And one of them was really good with kind of like traditional students. And one was really good with the gifted students. And then I was really good with the behavioral problem students, you know? Yeah. And so um, I wouldn't label them that now. So I used air quotes. Yeah. I just want to make sure everyone knows <laughs> That's that. true. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the kids who came from hard places, the kids who had vulnerable backgrounds, who, um, you know, had the, the behaviors that we were seeing in school. And I just fell in love with trying to figure out what worked for them um, and, and how to support them emotionally and socially mm-hmm. um, and how to kind of, I don't know how, you know, the academic part was important to me, but I was very much more concerned with the social emotional part. And so that's why I went back to school for counseling. And then as a counselor, I spent most of my time at a middle school. And um, while I wouldn't want to teach at a middle school because I don't know how they do it, <laughs> being the counselor there was so rewarding and fun. And the connections that I got to make with the kids and hear about their struggles and what was going on with them and, and seeing who had those strong social connections, you know, to help them get through difficult places and who didn't and kind of, you know, how do you, how do you create that when it's not coming from their, you know, primary caregivers? That is incredible. That's, that's awesome. So, uh, I guess let's, without any further ado, let's jump right into the attachment work. And so, um, for those who are coming in with either a you know, basic premise or, or just a, a faint idea even of what um, attachment is, do you mind just sharing like what, what is attachment and kind of giving us a, a history of the study of attachment? Sure. So like I said, I did my counseling program and then I came to, to TCU and I just want to kind of back up just for a second to kind of give a big picture, but um I I don't remember learning about attachment theory in my counseling program. I mean, we may have read about it, but it wasn't, you know, it, I, it, there wasn't any time spent on it. And so when I came to TCU and started learning from Dr. Purvis and Dr. Cross, and I learned about attachment theory, for me personally, it organized everything that I'd been taught and it organized all the behaviors I was seeing. It organized how families worked. It organized the the challenging behaviors I was seeing, it just kind of provided that the scaffolding for all of the work that I'd done before. And I, I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I knew this when I was teaching. I wish I knew this when I was, you know, as a counselor, you know, I have, I had some of the, you know, the instincts already, but just to have the science and the words and the framework for it, I think it just, it organized the way that I thought about families and behavior and, and, and relationships. So. It's interesting. Cause I feel like that very similar to me, 
the first time I heard something or read something, it was like the, a whole new set of lenses to like, to view myself, to view my own motivations and behaviors, to view like, oh, this has why this is happening in my marriage, or this is why this is happening in my family. Like it was like a whole new set of lenses to see relationships, humanity, motivations. Like it, it, it is so incredibly eye-opening. So I'm excited for those of us, you know, the listeners that we might have today that this is the first time they're thinking about attachment in this kind of way and its impacts on us personally and how attachment theory really is a huge part of just human human behavior that we can kind of jump into that. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of attachment theory and the study of it? Like give us a little bit of a history lesson. Okay, so John Bowlby is known as the father of attachment, and he started looking at um, children who back then were known as juvenile delinquents, and he started looking at what were some of their similar circumstances and some of the things that he saw were that they had, um, that they didn't have you know, consistent caregivers. And so that got him thinking about, you know, what is the importance of early relationships? Um, when we think about attachment, what it really means is a bond between two people. I mean, that's just the the most basic definition. But yeah. when we think about attachment theory, I always, I like to add to it that it's through, it's that bond with between two people that develops through patterned interactions with our caregivers. And so I think that patterned interactions is really what's important. And it's, it's how we learn how to, how relationships work from our very early caregiving is how we kind of set up, they call it in science, it's called an internal working model. But I think of it as like our parameters or our scaffolding for how the relationships work. Do we turn towards people when we're distressed or do we turn towards, you know, other things when we're stressed out? Do we value ourselves? Do we have self-worth? Do we know like that our voice matters, that if we talk, someone's going to listen? So these are all the things. So attachment, I guess in its simplest form, is a bond between two people. But when we think about attachment theory, it's those patterned interactions that happen over and over and over again um, in our early, early caregiving that, um, that kind of defines attachment theory. And so um, there, I did a book study with some graduate students last summer, and we read um, a book about smart therapy, which is sensory motor arousal regulation treatment. So um, it's, uh, it's kind of a mouthful, but it talks about the way that they talk about attachment is they use the word, words, uh, um, rhythms of engagement. Mm, and okay. I don't know why, but that just stuck with me. I think that's beautiful. So it's, it's how are the rhythms of engagement with the person that's supposed to nurture you and care for you and, and reflect back your preciousness and your joy. Mm-hmm. And so what are those rhythms, you know, that goes kind of with the patterned interactions is that rhythms of engagement. I just thought that was a really beautiful way to, to talk about oh, attachment. So is, well, I think that um, even as I'm listening to you talk, I think about how um, frequently when, when the conversation around attachment comes up, I immediately think of, uh, only about kids. And I think of kids through adoption or, or in foster care or, or kids in, um, kind of storybook extreme circumstances, you know, and as you're talking, I, you know, I'm just reminded 
I've got an attachment style and like I had rhythms of engagement with my uh, caregivers growing up and those who were consistent in my life and, and as did Tana, as did you. And so um, I, I don't know if you want to kind of detour for a moment away from kids just to remind uh, parents and caregivers, what, how, how do we look at that within ourselves um, and, and why is it important for us to understand that as, as caregivers for kids? That's a big question. Um, I will <laughs> I will attempt to, to dive into it a little a little bit. Um, I think one of the most important. So there was a study at the University of Minnesota, um, and it was a it's a longitudinal study. And so what they did is they started working with um, young pregnant women who were in their like late teens, and they followed them for over forty years. So they started in I think it was oh, nineteen seventy four, wow. which is the year I was born. So I know it was forty. Well, I don't even know how old I am, 46 years ago. <laughs> and they followed, so they followed the those women and their babies, and then their babies have grown up and had babies. And so they followed them and they've they've you know they've been able to collect data for multiple generations. And what they have found is the long-term outcomes, and I think we're gonna get into the different um, classifications of attachment, but what they found is that if those children, those babies at 18, you know, 12 to 18 months who were secure in their attachment with their caregivers had better long-term outcomes as adults. So if we're thinking just, okay, what is the importance of understanding our own attachment as an adult? One thing is for our caregiving behaviors. So if we can understand where our history is, what patterns we fall into, what rhythms of engagement we have, what happens to us when we feel safe, you know, what do we do? What happens to us when we're stressed? What do we do? If we can have some self-awareness around that, it's going to help us to be better caregivers. But another thing is if we, if we think about um, attachment from an adult perspective, it's, you know, even if we didn't get that as a child, we can go, we can get that from healthy relationships as an adult. I think that's another hopeful thing. It's never too late. Yeah. So that's, there's a thing called earn secure in adulthood. And that means you didn't have, you know, this warm, supportive, consistent caregiver, but you found people along the way to teach you what healthy relationships looked like. So you could develop those kind of healthy relationship skills. Which brings so much hope, right? Into that conversation. Um, why don't we sort of work backward from that? So you talk about, you know, the possibility of growing up without that attachment. What, you know, what happens when um, that attachment cycle is disrupted or broken in some form or fashion? Um, and, and kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that study also speaks to, you know, disrupted attachment along the way. Mm-hmm. So I, I always teach this in a couple of different ways when I'm working with our, our child development students. Um, there's a different couple of ways that you can teach attachment. And one is, you know, in the broad sense, it's just a way to view human development. So what, you know, it's, that's kind of the big sense. If you get down, another way to kind of describe it is um, it's a regulation. It's a way to teach regulation. So if we're feeling stressed out and a caregiver comes and meets our needs, that teaches us that our voice matters for one thing, that we have a voice. It teaches us that we have worth because someone's coming to help us meet our needs. And it teaches us that we have efficacy 
which kind of goes with the voice that when we speak, someone listens, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a regulation. Attachment theory is also a regulation theory, and that's one way you can teach it. So if you have a consistent, nurturing, warm caregiver who's meeting your needs on a regular basis, not 100% of the time. So parents, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to do it. Okay. Let us break just one moment and give yes. us hope that this does not mean super parents. This just no. means parents who are doing an average job here. Like, right. know, just yeah. Somewhat attuned, somewhat mindful that our children are crying and we might should help them. <laughs> right. That's right. It is not perfect parenting, but it right. means it That's is good enough yeah. parenting. Just, so. do it, just paying attention to your baby's needs, yes. meet your baby's needs on yes. a consistent rhythmic, I wrote that, rhythms of engagement. Rhythms of engagement. What are the patterns they're learning? That's what I always like to think is like, if you look at it from the baby's perspective, what are they learning? So they're learning when they have a need, someone's going to meet it right? Most of the time. Okay. They're learning, oh, I must be pretty cute because this, you know, this caregiver is looking in my eyes and smiling and their eyes are glowing and they're twinkling and they're, you know, there's this, this rhythm of engagement back and forth between talking and cooing. And so I must be pretty special, right? And I must have worth. I must have a voice. I must matter. I have preciousness. I have that inherent worth um, that I think many that many of us are looking for, right? That I am worthy. I don't have to achieve anything. I don't have to do anything. Just me being this little baby is, is enough. Right. Um, so I kind of lost my reference of where we were going from there. (laughs) I was thinking about attachment as a dance of that, just we're dancing together. So kiddo expresses a need and the caregiver meets the need and that that attachment dance that happens in, in rhythm and in sync. We hope, you know, as you were talking, Casey, a little um, video came to mind. Maybe some of y'all have seen it. And it's this um, little baby on a changing table and it's a dad and the dad is like dancing. I'm dancing on the screen. The podcaster people cannot see me dancing. I cannot do <laughs> that. So y'all just imagine that I'm dancing and the dad is dancing and the baby just dances back, kicking their feet and they're, and then the dad stops and the baby stops and the dad starts and the baby starts and they are in rhythm together. And there's this little sweet dance of relationship that's happening right there. And I look at it. I mean, the first time I saw, it, I just teared up. I'm like, this dad is reflecting back to this baby that they are seen and that their like physiology can even be mirrored in that way. You dance, I dance, I dance, you dance, and we're in sync together. And so that to me is like this little really beautiful picture, simply a playful engagement, building that trust through a little attachment. And that's not even a distressing need. Yeah. That's just the need for like playful engagement and it's being met, right? It's not just when we meet our kids in their distress, but even when we meet them in their play. Yeah, it makes me think of Dr. Purvis used to call that the attachment dance. And so whether we call yeah. it an attachment dance or we call it rhythms of engagement or patterned interactions, what it means is that we're are we're in tune with each other. Mm. We're or yep. we're attuned with each other. You know, have you ever played the mirror game where you stand face to face with somebody and when they move their arm, you move it in the same way. And when they, yep. you know, move their leg up, I mean that's you want to be um attuned 
to what is their needs and also attuned to the joy, right? Yeah. So we've got to be in the video that you were talking about. I haven't seen that, but it just, it, that makes me so happy. It makes me think of another video of a dad um, and you see him doing a cheer out on a, like, it looks like a New York street and he's doing a cheer and then it, the, the angle widens up and his, he's doing it with his daughter and it is the cutest thing, mm-hmm. but they're just saying the motions and doing the dance and just really having joy and, you know, and being playful with each other. And so when you think of rhythms of engagement, you know, what are the benefits of that? That goes back to that regulation theory we were talking about. It helps when we have that attuned relationship, that dance with someone, um, we're able to better regulate our bodies, our brains, our thoughts, our emotions, all of those things. So that's sometimes it's known as a, a regulation theory. Okay. So I, I start to get a little bit of a lump in my throat when we talk about this and we're, and we're like talking about these sweet moments of, of parents and kids and all that. And for a lot of us listening and, and, you know, obviously the, I say Tana and I both like our, our kids, um, some came through adoption. And, and so when you think about that, there's obviously in that story or in that scenario, there's a disruption in that natural attachment cycle that is, that was, you know, normally established. And so can you talk about what happens in that? Cause I think one of the important things for us to kind of note as we're listening is we're not like the phrase biological parents just came out for the first time. We keep talking about caregivers. And so will you talk about the, like when a disruption happens in an attachment cycle, um, what happens? And then is there hope to be able to repair that? Yeah. So when we, can I talk about the, is it okay if I talk about the attachment cycle and then what happens when the needs aren't met? Would that be a good? I guess. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, one of the things um, that we use to describe attachment is the attachment cycle. And so in the simplest way that I can describe it is a child has a need and a caregiver meets that need. And so when they have that need, they're distressed, um, you know, so they're crying or they're whining or they're whatever. And then when their need is met, they calm down. So when they're upset, when they have that need, there's several things going on at the same time. One is that their um, sympathetic nervous system has been activated. And so, and that sympathetic nervous system is the one that puts you on high alert. So your pupils dilate, your muscles get tight, you're, you know, you're not digesting food like you normally do. Um, you might see the shoulders raise up, you might see the jaw tense. So it's that, it's preparing you for action, right? And so when your sympathetic nervous system is activated, then when your need, when that baby's need is met, then their parasympathetic nervous system comes in and regulates the par- the sympathetic nervous system, and it provides the calm. The okay, let's relax our muscles. Our let's our pupils go back. You know, we feel safe. Another thing that's happening in our brain is our neurotransmitters. And so we have excitatory neurotransmitters that get activated when we're distressed. We have inhibitory neurotransmitters that come on board to help regulate when our needs are met. Um, Most of your listeners have probably heard of the amygdala or the HPA axis. My husband was trying to talk about the amygdala last night and he was like, and I was like, are you talking about amygdala? And he's like, yeah, I know what it was, but sorry. Um, But the amygdala is your fear center. And so it's the center that is, it's like, it's, it's looking out for threats. It's your threat detector. And so when you're distressed, your HPA axis is, is set off and, you know, 
cortisol is released and all these, you know, chemicals that are getting you ready for action are released. And then when that needs met, you've got your, the brakes are put on your HPA axis and so, and your system. And so you can be calm. So I always tell new parents, you know, think about how many times your baby has a need in a 24 hour period of time. I mean, if you're talking about newborns, it's like, you know, yes, hundreds, I don't know. Yeah. Momentarily. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like from second to second. Um, so when we think about that, we've got all of these systems at work when a child has a need, you know, and then their need is met. And so they, this, when we talk about patterned interactions, this is what we're talking about. Rhythms of engagement. What happens? Do we have a caregiver that comes in and meets that need so that that, that calming side of the attachment cycle can be activated? And so what you're talking about is if, you know, if we don't have a safe caregiver, um, then our attachment cycle is kind of missing half of it. So what happens is we have this need and our HPA axis is activated. Our muscles are tense. Our sympathetic nervous system is activated. Our excitatory neurotransmitters are activated. But then we stay in that, you know, fight, flight, or freeze system. We stay there and we don't come down. So when you think about rhythms of engagement or regulation, you can see how an infant who does have a consistent caregiver is learning how to regulate. Oh, I'm distressed. Oh, now I'm calm. Oh, I'm distressed. Now I'm calm. But if you don't have that that other half of the attachment cycle, if you don't have a caregiver to help meet your needs consistently, warmly nurturing, all of that, then you're kind of stuck. Um, you know, it's like you're you're kind of stuck in that fight, flight, or freeze system. And so until you have healthy relationships, um, you're kind of there. And it's hard. And what it normally comes out as, and we can talk about attachment classifications, but it can look multiple ways. It can look different ways. Um, but it, it typically comes out in behavior and in relationships. Interesting. That is so interesting. Okay. So we're, we, we know kind of scientifically we're able to repair that attachment. And, and can you kind of talk about that process of, of repairing attachment and what that looks like um, for somebody who's had a, a disruption? Yes. I think um, I want to back up just a little bit and say that the reason that we have these kids who aren't getting their needs met, who are showing, you know, really dysregulated emotions and behavior, it's because they're survivors. They haven't given mm-hmm. up. They're saying, hey, you didn't come meet my needs, but I'm going to try everything I know how to do to meet, to get them met on my own. It makes me think of the still face paradigm where that little baby and that mom, you can tell they're, they, they're attuned. And then the mom starts, stops reacting and the baby tries, I think it's like 10 or 12 different strategies to get the mom's attention. Yeah. She's, she points, she smiles, she makes a face, she whines, she cries. She does all of these things trying to get her needs met. And those are survival skills. Yeah. But when we think about these kids that don't get that second part of the attachment cycle, it's be, it, and they have these behaviors or these dysregulations, we have to view those as, wow, they have survived. They have tried to get their needs met in the best way that they know how, which just makes my heart sad. You know, I, th- I think it's interesting because I think that major mindset shift that you just talked about right there, mm-hmm. really, like if we let that settle in, it really can change the way 
that we view children and, you know, children do grow up to be adults. And so even just behavior in general and can give us a really compassionate mindset, I think, and a way to honor people. Like it's very, it's, it can, it allows us to honor behavior for the adaptive strategy that it is. Yeah. And instead of our kids, like you air quoted us earlier, right? Instead of them being behavioral problems, they are really beautifully resilient human beings That's doing so their good. very, very best yes. within the capacity that they have outside of their control, you know, because of circumstances and situations to show up in the world the best way they can. And so like how we, if we can reframe that thing, then there is so much growth and capacity to like move forward together. And so, you know, at the top of the episode, when we talked about like, when you start thinking about attachment, it really can shift so much of how you view people and behavior, Um, which is why I love it so much. I mean, it just really does get me so excited because it can move us to this place of not pity. Like we don't want to pity. That's not the right. It's, it's more like, empathy and compassion that moves us towards cheerleading action. Mm -hmm. You totally have this. Look at, look at how strong and resilient and capable you are to communicate your needs. Even if they come off in ways right now that are out of the acceptable behavior in this circumstance. Okay. But you are, you still have the tenacity to communicate that you have a need. And so we've got a long way to go with kids. So it's never too late. That's Tana's little preachy thing. And, and, it, and understanding attachment and understanding that resilient piece, I think is what gets you to being able to see the hope for kids. It is never too late. The parents at that first camp that Dr. Purvis led, they named it the Hope Connection Camp because mm-hmm. the first time um, in their, you know, with, with their children, they felt hope because yeah. they saw things that they could yeah. do. And I think, I think Darren talks about this, Darren Jones from the Institute talks about this when um, he talks as he said that when he first learned about um, TBRI, that he stopped looking like dreading challenges from kids. And he started looking at it as an opportunity. And to me, if you can switch your mindset to say, Oh my goodness, I, and like you said, no pity, but I am so sad that this, baby, even if they're 15 or 16 and taller than me, this baby didn't get what they needed at some point in their life. And I have an opportunity to show them what healthy relationships look like. I have an opportunity. That's why they say, I mean, I always tell my students is they say it takes one person, you know, and I, th- I think, and sometimes my students get um, a little discouraged because they, you know, may have limited time to work with a student. And I always say, it's like, we're planting seeds. You've got that one teacher in kindergarten that teaches what healthy relationships look like and that what safety feels like. And then you have that coach in soccer. And then you have that the uh, youth director at church. And you have all of these people, you know, your caseworker, if you're going, if you're in the child welfare system. And so I think what you said, that compassion piece can really be built through mm-hmm. understanding attachment theory and understanding the survival strategies that many kids have, have been um, charged with developing. Well, you mentioned working in schools and being drawn to the kids who have, you know, again, air quotes, behavioral challenges. And I, I used to work in schools in a similar setting as well. And, and same, I, I had um, a network of after school programs and it was almost full with kids who served a suspension 
if not once a week, at least some point during a semester. Um, and, and yet I've, we never had any issues. And I think one of the things that helps so much is this perspective that you talked about. Um, and, and what it, what it led to is as much of an asset based view as it was like, it was a mindset from an ass, like from a deficit based view to an asset based view where, um, learning about the, the brain and resiliency and how it works, knowing these kids are, are, are like kids who it's like an athlete who has been, uh, super trained in one muscle, one muscle group and just needs to balance back out the other. Like they've got the, they've got the biggest biceps in the world and just need to like work on their leg strength a little bit to be able to hold that big upper body up. Right. (laughs) And so it it helped me, I think, to drive even a, a huge level of respect for the kids that we were working with to go, man, you've been through so much. Like I, and, and it, it gave me great confidence. You've been resilient, you made it this far. I know we can get further. I just got to teach you to trust me. And then, um, once you trust me, I know we've, we've got this thing. We can go, um, that mindset shifts. I mean, even, even if we just clip that one part of the conversation today, I think is worth, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is worth the price of admission, uh, to come in. So, um, I, I tell you what, why, why don't we actually, Pause right there. We'll pause our conversation right there. Um, and for those of you who um, are are frustrated, we're leaving on a cliffhanger right now. Uh, good, because now you'll come back next week to listen as well. Um, what we'll talk about next week are the attachment styles. And so um, do you want to kind of explain just a little overview of that, um, Dr. Call, and then we'll, we'll come back next week and talk through that a little bit more. Sure. So there are um, three primary attachment styles and then um, another one. So Next week, I'll talk about how you assess attachment and kind of the the different styles and what the out what behaviors do you see with those styles, um, and then what are the outcomes, um, and then how does that carry over into adulthood? Awesome. So make sure you join us next week on the Empower to Connect podcast to hear um, about attachment styles with Dr. Call. Dr. Call, thanks, and we will see you next week. Bye. Well, that was great, wasn't it? Uh, I really hope that you enjoyed Dr. Call's uh, first part of the episode as much as we did. Um, we're going to be back next week with her to talk about uh, kind of part two of attachment, where we'll talk about um, the attachment styles. Uh, and and really, I mean, I, I think I say this every week, you won't want to miss it. But uh, if you enjoy part one, uh, trust me, part two is equally as important. Uh, and you don't want to miss that content that's coming next week. Just a reminder, shoot us some feedback, either in the comment section, leave a rating, leave a review view uh, really helps us be discovered by other people who might be uh, searching for the same kind of content that you are here. Uh, And lastly, go check out our YouTube page uh, and let us know what you think. And we will see you next week uh, for Tad Jewett, who brings us our music, for Kyle Wright, who edits our episodes and engineers them, uh, and for Mo and Tana Ottinger at ETC, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empower to Connect podcast.